Hello and welcome to the MedTalk podcast. Uh, we apologise for the hiatus. Uh, COVID-19 caused on the back foot a little bit, but I'm Ian Bolland. I'm the editor of MedTech Innovation News, and I'm joined by our own vaccine expert, the editor of European Pharmaceutical Manufacturer, Visa Armstrong. Visa, I think the only place to start with, when it, especially when it comes to you and uh, your title, is um, just how many vaccines have been approved in the United Kingdom so far. Yeah, sure. So uh, right now we've got three vaccines available uh, in the UK, the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine, the Oxford and AstraZeneca one and the Moderna one. Um, and early, earlier this week, we saw uh, strong efficacy ratings from Novavax's vaccine as well. So that's looking like it's heading toward towards approval if the regulators uh, deem it so. Okay, I mean, I think we should also point out to the listeners that we are recording this on the 5th of February, so if there are any other vaccines that have been approved in the meantime, we're probably going to cover them later on in this podcast because there's there's data out from Johnson & Johnson with the Janssen vaccine, and uh, we're going to have a look at, you know, some of those that have been discontinued as well. Uh, One major story surrounding vaccine and vaccine procurement has been uh, surrounding AstraZeneca. Um, This unbelievable row with uh with the european commission about uh supplying the vaccine um in, in many ways it has been a in the political sense a gift of brexiteers because uh, uh the the rea- reaction of the european commission was to trigger article 16 of the northern ireland protocol which we'll come on to in a re- uh, regulation podcast later on this this year no doubt and uh ever since They've withdrawn it since, and it's been a bit, um, let's just say it's been messy. Yeah, it has been messy, and it's been strange to watch, especially especially in, in terms of the aftermath of, of Brexit. And I, I don't know how you stand on it, but I, I felt the EU was being fairly heavy-handed in their conversations with um, the UK and AstraZeneca in, in general. Um, AstraZeneca obviously obviously ran into production problems with the vaccine, where, and it couldn't fulfil its uh, obligation to the EU. But then, for them to, you know, threaten to restrict exports of a vaccine from the EU to the UK, um, it, it it just boiled over into this big aftermath of Brexit argument, um, which I don't think is very productive in you know times of global crisis in terms of COVID nineteen. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. The EU's response was uh, heavy-handed, and I'm no lover of the uh, uh, of the Brexit project, as you well know, Reese. But um, it, like I said before, it, it was the, probably the best yeah. best advert that they, that they could have given um, Brexiteers in the UK. Uh, I think um, <laughs> a lot of a lot of what has caused this has actually been the EU hasn't exactly been on the ball in terms of procurement, from what I've heard from those. Uh, living on the continent, I include family members in that. They've been extremely concerned about how they've handled this. Mm. Um, I think when they also uh, disclosed redacted parts of the contract with AstraZeneca, and I'm not entirely sure, I'm no legal person here, but I'm not entirely sure that they uh, had a leg to stand on because there was a lot of talk about best efforts. And surely AstraZeneca would argue that their best efforts is supplying what they've got now or supplying the 31 million COVID-19 shots to the EU in the first quarter. I know it's a 60% reduction, but that is still a best effort from from their point of view. I mean, there are probably better legal minds than me and you to discuss this in more detail. But it does 
seem like this has been a very heavy-handed approach that has spiraled out of control. And the consequences seem to be a bit more vast in supply at the moment because we've had almost President Macron talking about, well, it was um, almost spreading anti-vax myths, uh, talk about not enough data in the over 65. There's so much detail to go into. I don't think we're going to have time. Uh, it's just to quite get into it. But it really does seem like the most almighty mess when in reality, I think if we actually look at some of the data later on, this is going to be a very, very effective tool for dealing with uh, the crisis that we're currently in. Yeah, and just back on the AstraZeneca um, in the EU supply, you know, it was expected to be 80 million by the end of March um, and the same for the second quarter ending um, of June. But like you said, if they're trying to do their best efforts in terms of production, uh, we know vaccine manufacturing is a very variable process um, in terms of the number of doses that you get out of it. So... Perhaps there's been a miscommunication in terms of the EU with what it can meet in terms of demand and supply. I think like a lot of the um, uh, well-developed nations in terms of economic prosperity, you're looking at, they've got 600 million doses of of the Pfizer vaccine, uh, or or up to rather, and up to 160 million doses of Moderna, and there's been... And there's talk of uh, GSK up to 300 million doses, Johnson & Johnson up to 400 million doses, CureVac up to 405 million doses. There's, there's going to be more than enough to go around. Well, there is, but um, you know, at the same time, it has to, it has to be distrib- distributed um, across healthcare services effectively. And they, those numbers are just projections in terms of 2021, I, I believe. I don't know if it goes into 2022 as well. Um. So it'll be interesting to find out, you know, how many of these batches can, how many of these doses, sorry, can these uh, vaccine manufacturers get out in terms of, you know, number of batches um, throughout the year. But, I mean, compared to the UK, the UK is doing quite well in terms of its um, vaccination schedule. I think over 10 million at least uh, as of this week. And uh, the EU, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's struggling to get its citizens vaccinated. So I don't know if it's just a supply problem or if it has also got to do with the vaccination rollout methods there. It is in everybody's interest that everybody on the EU is vaccinated. And the sooner that can happen, the sooner we can all get back to normal. I mean, and, and it's the same for across the world. It can't just be the richer nations that are hogging all these vaccines. We need, you know, lesser economic developed countries need a good distribution method as well and i think it's, it's it has to be an international effort this cannot be yeah that's an interesting point you make there ian um, in, in terms of the figures of how much the uk the eu the us how many doses of vaccines they've procured you know before these therapies were even approved we were doing pre-purchasing agreements with pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies you know for millions upon millions of doses um, you know, that's the benefit of being in, in a wealthier country, that you, you can depend on your government to, to secure um, these things. But when you look at um, developing, developing nations and lower to middle income countries, they really depend on international efforts, such as the COVAX scheme, which was um, developed last year to ensure fair and equitable vaccine distribution across the world. They are aiming for 2 billion vaccine doses to be distributed in 2021, I believe. 
Um, and I think they're starting the middle of February. They, they'll start um, trying to get those vaccine doses rolled out. But in terms of where we are now for, you know, whole, whole world coverage, it's very low as a global coverage rate for, this, for these vaccines. Indeed. I think you mentioned COVAX. But if you compare the UK to somewhere... So you you mentioned COVAX there. I think yeah. it's worth mentioning that. I think AstraZeneca are an, an integral part of that because of uh, the cost of a dose. And I think if we actually come on to AstraZeneca again, because they've been and they've had a lot of data come out this week about um, about AstraZeneca. The uh, there've been studies suggesting that the vaccine itself can actually not only prevent serious illness but reduce transmission, which if it reduces transmission by the two thirds that that we're seeing, it would bring the R rate down from three to one if everybody was vaccinated. Which is okay. There's still there's still people being infected, but that transmission rate is so much lower that, that can it, it's a massive step in the right direction if that's the case. And yeah, that's the that's the trouble we saw with the um, variants of COVID nineteen as well. I was reading something today because Denmark are preparing for their third wave at the, at the moment um, against the, I think it might be the African variant. And it's the transmission rate that is really the killer there because it spreads much faster than the original COVID-19 variant. Um, so yeah, like you said, if we can get that down, then life can return back to normal um, as soon as possible, even more as soon as possible. Um, it's, it's probably a lot further away than most people would, would like. Yeah, and I think I'm just going to pick up on one other thing about AstraZeneca in, in terms of we're sort of looping back to the uh, the entire EU row here a little bit, but um, there's been some contention about the data that of how effective it's been in the over 65s, and th- this has actually led to a couple of non-EU uh, countries in Norway and Switzerland uh, who, who say they won't be using them in the over 65s. That was reported by Lewis Goodall on Newsnight on, by his Twitter feed. Um, I think. As I think yep. the EU might actually look to the UK here in terms of how effective this the AstraZeneca vaccine is going to be in over 65s here. And if they see really good data from here, then I've got very little doubt that it's going to be approved by all these nations across the continent. Yeah, and to be fair, I think they're doing the right thing in, in not giving it to over 65s because like, these vaccines have been developed in what under, under a year, usually they take 10 years. So it's been a massive effort to get these brought to market. You know, people are going to be worried about the lack of data in, in certain subgroups. I know pregnant women um, were also worried about it. Um, in terms of other groups as well, um, the, I think it was the Epilepsy Society, were worried about how it was going to uh, affect, you know, those type of patients. And... Uh, no, no, not sorry. The uh, MS Society, not the epilepsy. Sorry about that. Um, because there's a, you know there's a, there's a lack of data, and it's not just a lack of data. It, it's how it affects other treatments that patients are taking as well. So, yeah, you're right when you when other countries might look to the UK, and you know those post market authorization studies that will take place to see how how the vaccines work after so long will be vital in terms of how um, the vaccines are approved elsewhere. I think it's always going to be a case that we, we just need more information. I mean, I think uh, you're right to tip, tip your hat to the fact that it's been a massive effort. 
it's, it's been an incredible effort just to get to this stage in terms of having a vaccine rollout and such a, because it's been 11 months since we were back in the office race and 11 months since we were sent home saying, well, we don't know how long this will last. <laughs> and it's a case of they've developed a vaccine in less yeah. than that time. And it, it, it's, it's an, an incredible feat. Uh, one of the other stories that has been spoken about quite a bit is this gap between the first and second dose of, um, of, uh, of the vaccine, because, I think I'm right in saying that Pfizer and AstraZeneca they they had a three week interval. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong in this, but and the the UK has decided that it would be best to give as many uh, patients uh, the first shot of the vaccine as possible, to, with the logic of developing a little bit of immunity to prevent serious illness, to bring down transmission rates, hopefully, and then the NHS isn't overwhelmed, and then they can start to open up other services. There has been a little bit of debate around this because, you know, you could argue that the UK is becoming one big clinical trial in terms of the, in terms of the lead time between vaccine number one and vaccine number two, or jab number one and jab number two. Um, I think there was actually some, yeah. uh, uh, I think it was the, was it the British Medical Journal, they had some data, uh, sorry, the British Medical Association, I do apologise, said it was difficult to justify a 12-week interval and it should be changed to six weeks on the Pfizer vaccine. Um, but we're actually seeing on a different vaccine in the AstraZeneca vaccine, they've, they're saying that it's offering protection for that 12... That tw- so, sorry, it shows sustained protection of 76% during a three-month interval until the second dose. Um, obviously, it's, it's two different vaccines. They probably work in different ways. It's actually, I think I saw on Channel 4 News that there's going to be a, uh, a study into... If you have one dose of one and one dose of the other, what's the effect? But I think in terms of the UK government's strategy of 12 weeks, they'll be encouraged by this AstraZeneca data. Uh, yeah, because they were saying they wanted to do that so we can sort of um, build up capacity and so people aren't just hanging around doing, doing nothing, um, essentially, at the vaccination services. Um, but the British Medical Association association have also suggested that second doses might not be guaranteed after a 12-week delay given the unpredictability of, of supplies you know something with, which we've seen between the eu and the in the uk and astrazeneca um so it's, it's you know it's interesting that there are all these variables uh, i think people will get their second doses um I, I, you know people aren't going to be left out in, out in the cold um for that but as long as you know, seventy-six percent chance. Imagine if you didn't, if it, if it wasn't effective for you, if you were in, you know, that subgroup where where it wasn't effective. Yeah, I can't say I'd like to be in it. Having seen family members actually have COVID themselves, it, it's it's not actually. Uh, I mean, I think we should we should say it is a very real and horrible disease. Uh, I mean. There's no such thing as just mm-hmm. a cold, in my opinion, with, with with that thing. Even if people feel like they've just had a cold, it's just, nah, not not for me. <laughs> uh, but no, I was going to say I, I know it's an, uh, quite a quite an old argument or um, a, a debate to have, but you know, you know, people who say it is ju- it is just a cold and we don't shut down the country for flu. Well, the health services are prepared for flu every year. They're prepared for the influx of capacity in terms of how many people are going to be admitted to A&E and um, intensive care units. We weren't prepared at all 
for a massive pandemic to run throughout the entire world. We weren't prepared at all for needing to develop new therapies and diagnostics and breathing apparatus. So I know this conversation has already been had, but it needs to be said that there's a reason we don't shut down all the flu. It's because we're prepared for it every year. COVID-19, we were not prepared. And I think that segues nicely onto a, fu- a future feature that we might have where the government says it's too early for an inquiry, so we'll have our own. And we'll talk to various people in industry as to how they prepared and how they felt how they felt that they prepared and how the government prepared. But that's for another day. Um, I thought we should actually come on to a couple of other uh, vaccine candidates that we've seen. We've Moderna has been approved. Am I right in thinking that's another two-dose I believe so. There's so many vaccines that I've gotten lost throughout <laughs> this entire process. I, I think most of them are. Too I know, um, was it GSK's one-dose vaccine wasn't as effective as they would have liked? Or Johnson & Johnson's? I think Johnson & Johnson... One of the G, of the Gs. I think, yeah, Johnson & Johnson's Janssen vaccine. Uh, we'll come on to that now since you mentioned it. Um, they had 85% yeah. effect overall in preventing severe disease and demonstrated complete protection against COVID-19-related hospitalizations, deaths, as of day 28. That's what it says at the top of its uh, press release. It said that the candidate was 72% effective in the US and 66% effective overall at preventing. There's certainly high high numbers. Um, I don't know really where the... Because a, a trial will have, will have an endpoint where it needs to be effective up to a certain degree um, for it to move on to the next stage or to seek regular regulatory approval. Um, in terms of one of the other vaccines, the Novavax vaccine, which um, released interim data at the end of last week or this week, um, so that received 89% efficacy rating um, in, in a trial of, I think it was 15,000 people. But, and, and here's where that figure comes from. So, so that data is taken from the interim data of the clinical trial. Um, and that interim analysis is based on 62 cases, 56 of whom received a placebo, and six people received a vaccine. And that's when testing against different strains of COVID-19. The vaccine was 95.6% effective against the original strain and 85.6% effective against the, uh, the UK variant. So six people have received the vaccine, and it was 86% effective. And this is the part where I always get confused about, because you're, you're taking it from a trial of 15,000 people, but it's only a small amount that this first efficacy data is, you know, based off of. And I, I guess that's the part they released first to say it is working. It's, you know, it's, it's looking good, but we, we now need to analyze all the other Parts parts of the trial, all the you know the rest of the fifteen thousand people, and see what the data says after that, and then all of that will be sent to the regulatory authorities, FDA, uh, and, and what have you, and then it will be you know judged upon then. Um, so it is the way I see the interim analysis is that it's it's a bit of a PR stunt because it is taken from a small sample of patients. And it's to make that company look bad or, you know, they need to release it anyway because it's, it's public interest now, right? These are developing, these companies are developing vaccines to save people's lives right now. 
Um, and like we've seen with, I think Merckx wasn't very successful um, in terms of their interim analysis. I think that was near 50 odd percent effective. Um, so, you know, the ones that are saying they're good, they will be good. Um, but there's, there's more to the data that we don't know about right now. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think the more data that we get on that kind of thing, the, uh, the better, just because you, you can't say that, you know, six six people is is no is in no way representative of even a fraction of the population. Um, and I think it's also important to make, this yeah. is actually the, the trial, I believe, two government ministers have actually been uh, participants in as well, including the head of the vaccine rollout in the UK. Um, but yeah, I think that I think we're just going to have to be patient on that one for a clearer picture. I mean, it's good that they feel good about it, them and they're the experts. But I mean, I think um, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with cynicism at a time like this. You want to be very careful. Uh, you you can't just say oh, it's good on this person. Yeah, I think the thing is with, with the pharma, it's it's very easy to look at it as you know, big 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 pharma, evil corporations taking all all, all of our money. Um, or you know, using all the the, the profits again to develop these treatments, um, just to gain more money. But at the end of the day, the scientists behind—I hate using that phrase—at the end of the day. But <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day, the people developing these therapies, you know, do care about the products they're putting out in, into the world. They are doing it because they want to save lives, or they want to improve lives, or well-being, or whatnot. So, you know, there, there might be some shady person up at the top at the top crunching the numbers but the scientists actually behind the vaccines are you know very caring people who want to do better by the world yes i'd just like to place on record we do not know any shady characters who work in the industry personally we're just going off pure hearsay i think we should put that legal statement out there right now uh, <laughs> um i think we um i think well uh, you, you mentioned merck actually because they they discontinued its development of vaccines after I think early trial data showed it failed generated to fails to generate an immune response comparable to a natural infection or existing vaccines because they adopted a different strategy, which focused on shots based on weakened viruses rather than I think a mm-hmm. lot of these candidates we've seen they've been more ba- more based on the crown of COVID nineteen and they and that, and that has been the trigger for antibodies when they've administered it into. Uh, when when they put it into people's arms, but I think it's I think Merck's ex- experiment almost was it was worth pursuing because you can't have too many weapons against anything as deadly as no that's that's the thing if they've taken a different approach um it wasn't an mRNA vaccine was it it was um a, a, diff- a different style of um, del- delivery. But yeah, I, I think the, the more the better. It's, it's unfortunate, unfortunate that it hasn't worked, but um, fair play to them for trying. I know they've, put, they've discontinued, discontinued it now. Um, and there they, they were two vaccine uh, candidates by, by Merck. Um, and it was one of the top six in the US's Operation Warp Speed portfolio, uh, actually. So it received some funding, and it was a single-dose candidate as well, so it would have been beneficial in terms of distribution and getting people vaccinated quickly. So it is very unfortunate that it hasn't worked. Yeah, I mean, the uh, both of the technology for, from its Ebola inoculation and the other from its uh, measles inoculation, I think because 
so I think because the, the US has been more exposed to um to Ebola and, and me and measles recently that they, they felt comfortable with a company like Merck to uh, you know pursue uh, that approach to a, a COVID vaccine candidate as well. Um, but yeah, I think can we come back to the one shot thing about uh, Johnson and Johnson because we we were saying about the, the positive numbers before. Um, it seems as though that the US in particular is actually hang, hanging its hat on uh, Johnson and Johnson. They've got over a hundred million doses. I think the Biden administration has ordered in combination with warp speed that went before it. So there is there is a substantial amount. Um, invested by the the world's largest economy in the J&J vaccine. I think, do you see going forward that countries might want to take the approach of let's try and get the best one? You know, they'll probably want to put money behind file companies developing the the best one-shot vaccine as possible because they're saying that this is going to be around for a while. I mean, there may even be times that we need boosters. Who knows? But... I think they're going to want as few a few jabs as possible. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's going. I think it's going to be a numbers game, and um, for a lot of countries, I think they're going to want to get as much supply as possible, whether that be from one developer, two developers, you know, multiple uh, vac- vaccine developers. I, I, I think they're going to try and do as many deals as possible, just in order to get their population vaccinated as quickly as possible. And um, because we we have seen some variation in terms of efficacy from the vaccines we've. Uh, secured in the UK, but I think they've all been generally quite high. The Johnson & Johnson one um, has only been shown to be 72% effective in the US and 66% effective um, at preventing moderate, moderate to severe COVID-19. So it's not, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not a, um, a, sure, a sure thing. Johnson & Johnson, so it'll be interesting to see what the data is like when it's released further. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I expect I expect to try and do as many supply deals as possible, like we've seen in the UK. Like we've seen that as soon as um, a vaccine becomes available, we we just throw money at it because we can. Yeah, I mean, have you um, have you heard about uh, what was the inspiration behind that for Matt Hancock? Oh, I was reading this early earlier this week. Contagion. Yeah, I mean, it was a movie, wasn't it? Contagion. Yeah, I mean, if it works, it works. But. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think when they say "don't believe everything you see in films," you know, you know, in all fairness to Matt Hancock, that movie is—it's a slog <laughs> to get through. For everybody who's thinking a pandemic would be twenty-eight days later, you know, the world is going, <laughs> is set on fire, which it is in, in certain places. Um, it's not. Pandemics are ultimately boring and quite terrifying for your friends and family catching a disease. No, um, it'll, be, it'll be like Boris Johnson basing his um, final term on the thick of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, I think we're going to come on to um, new variants now because I think um, it was Moderna who were the first out of the blocks to say that their vaccine was effective against a, um, a one one or two of the new variants. I think it was both the UK and the South African one. I think if I'm just bringing up their release now, they said uh, a two-dose two regimen of the Moderna vaccine is expected to be protective against emerging strains detected to date. Um, 
The thing is, though, there is. I've got one issue that I think we need to bring up about the two-dose thing and the new variants. I mean, if there's a case that we're being left too long uh, between um, between doses, there is this danger that a new variant takes off and then pharma manufacturers have, have got to readapt against you. Yeah, so in, in terms of the vaccines that we have available, I'm not sure we'll... Pharmaceutical companies will surely have to find out if, if people who've already been vaccinated are protected against variants, because then we, we're going to need to vaccinate again, right? I think that's a million-dollar question. Um, but I think the new variants and the way that they are, that any that take off, how new variants are you know, reacting to uh, people having one dose and then two dose, there's... This is going to be one for the long haul that we're going to have to keep a very close eye on, and uh, there's going to have to be a proactive approach from from government and from pharma uh, in order to uh, to keep on top of this and to make sure we're not in perpetual lockdown. Yeah, well, that leads us nicely onto the UK government's new partnership with CureVac, um, which was announced to tackle the future variants of COVID nineteen. So obviously, people are looking into it quite quite closely. Um, but just in, in that release, it says the new agreement will utilise UK expertise on genomics and virus sequencing to allow new varieties of vaccines based on messenger RNA technology to be developed quickly against new strains of COVID-19 if they are needed. So obviously the, uh, the, the new variants are of big concern and that's why that partnership has been announced. Yes, I mean, you can also see in the press release there is a grand total of 407 million doses already secured by the government today of uh, vaccination. Uh, that new agreement, as the UK has placed an initial order of 50 million doses of new vaccines to be delivered later this year if they are required. Um, there's a couple of questions that actually pop out of that press release to me in terms of, well, what happens if they aren't required? Are they going to go to uh, low economic developed countries? Uh, I've also quite interested in actually looking at the oh. comments from Matt Hancock and uh, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Professor John Tam, who, Jonathan Van Tam, sorry, where they are both mm-hmm. keen to emphasise the vaccine to safe, the vaccine to safe. It is a case of when they are, they're, they're still fighting a battle here of trying to get ev- trying to get uptake as high as possible, even though I think it's around about the 85 to 90% mark. That 15% is still a big chunk yeah, I mean, we, we're living in the age of misinformation and disinformation in social media where anybody who has a tinfoil hat on their head will share strange conspiracy theories about vaccines causing all sorts of problems. And the unfortunate thing is the people who aren't very well versed in the industry or who just don't take an interest in in science and politics and, and, and what have you, they can that information can very quickly spread to people and, you know, root, root itself in their brains so that, that, you know, they become cautious over how vaccines work, you know, and all sorts of these different conspiracy theories that we'll hear about these days. So uh, it, it's, it's sort of, it's what they have to do, they have to say that it is safe um, and, and, and effective. I've had friends who have been concerned about taking it because they say you know it's been developed really quickly and we just don't know what information to to believe 
um, which is fair enough. People are going to be con concerned if you've got to take a take a new um, drug that's been developed, you know, in in, in in a short amount of time. You do want to ensure that it's safe, but we have to trust the scientists as well. We have to trust people who are far smarter than us and far far more well researched in this area, and just be believe them. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the I think the UK actually missed an opportunity in, in one sense when the uh, the Queen, the Duke of Edinburgh, actually had their had their vaccination. I mean, if they actually, I mean, I, w I wouldn't want to make the royal family any more of a circus than I think it already is. It may not already be a circus disclaimer, but um, the uh, but I think there was a genuine opportunity in terms of you know let's let's get let's get cameras in if if. These people who are yeah. actually very well respected nationwide are taking the vaccine. Maybe it wins a few skeptics over, you know. And even if it brings one or two people over, it's it's a it's a it's a job well done. Yeah, definitely. Did you see the picture of Matt Hancock getting getting his vaccine? I didn't know. Oh, he's he's try, he, he, he's attempting to laugh. That's all I'll say. Give give it a look because it's it's um it's classic Matt Hancock. <laughs> I do love it. <laughs> I do love it. Oh, oh um, okay. <laughs> I'll have to look for that. Um, from that partnership announcement with the UK government, um, you, you, you spoke about 470 million doses already secured by the UK government to, to date. That is a huge number million. of doses that, yeah. Yeah, that we have available. Um. I was curious the other week about how large the UK population is, and I think it's around 70 million, 60, 65, 70 million. Um, it's certainly no bigger than 70 million. Yeah, yeah. So we, we've gone overboard in terms of vaccine procurement. So I think it's very interesting the point you raise about what will happen to those extra doses. Will we keep, keep on to them or will we donate them to another country? And that leads us into a story that was released today by the People's Vaccine Alliance, who have said that the supply of vaccines is being artificially rationed because of the protection of exclusive rights in monopolies of pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies. And um, this has been a conversation that's been had for a while by the People's Vaccine Alliance, who have called for the vaccine to be internationally available and not to be constrained by borders and pre-purchase and agreements that countries um, are, do are doing. Um, so that figure of 407 million sort of speaks is to speaks to what the People's Vaccine Alliance are talking about. Um, they were highlighting how purchasing agreements between rich countries and the developers of COVID-19 vaccines has resulted in a much lower coverage rate around the world. I know I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but as of yesterday, at all, which is the 4th of February, a total of 108 million COVID-19 vaccine doses had been administered across 67 countries. The kicker is, though, that only 4.4% of these vaccinations have been given in developing countries. So um, that is resulting in 1 in 10 people being vaccinated by the end of year in many developing countries. The, uh, the People's Vaccine Alliance warns. Yeah, that's not good enough. 
I mean, but but what was also striking from those um, statistics that you said there, because as as we're speaking now, we know the UK is over ten million on the first on the first dosage. So the UK has mm-hmm. over five percent of vaccine doses that have been administered throughout the world. I mean, I know I know Britain's going to actually say, "Well, look at how well we're doing," and the, the right to say that. But it is a problem if other countries are not coming at the, are not coming at a similar speed, because you know even with the UK in the position it finds itself in politically and trade-wise at the moment, the, the, the world the world economy has been almost hyper-connected over the past 20 or 30 years, mm. and, uh, and, and it misses its connectivity. Yeah, and if you just look at uh, travel as the, the, the big thing, if, if COVID-19 is still... Being transmitted around around the world, we we can't open up travel. We can't open up that economy. Life can't return back to normal. There needs to be um, a high coverage rate globally for this to stop. No, quite. Um, I just want to jump back onto that story by the People's Vaccine Alliance, um, because they are calling on governments in the pharmaceutical industry to scale up the production of COVID-19 vaccines and remove artificial barriers, barriers including suspending intellectual property rules, sharing technology and ending monopoly control so that everyone has access to a vaccine as quickly as possible. Last year, um, something related to COVAX and the World Health Organization allowed companies to, to share intellectual property rights and the the data behind COVID-19 vaccines. Unfortunately, not one company has signed up to this um, initiative that was launched. And I assume that's to protect their their, their profit. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I'm curious. So the one question I'd ask there is a case of, they are noble proposals and ones I agree with, but does it stop the fundamental thing of richer nations just still buying these vaccines anyway? I mean, are they are they have they called for a quota on the amount of you know, or at least a floor on the amount of vaccines that are be, that are being distributed to these lesser developed countries? I mean, because I think that's what's needed. There needs to be a minimum um, requirement going out no. here, so just so just yeah, go on. No, and I, th- I think the issue you raise there highlights just how systemic of a problem this is within the industry. If, if initiatives like that aren't put in place, then countries can just buy up the, you know, the, the surplus of of, um, of doses that are available, and just leaving everybody else, you know, in in, in the dust essentially. Um. So the alliance in the press release they criticise people like GSK and Merck and Sanofi, who are the three largest vaccine developers largely sitting on the sidelines during COVID-19 um, in how, you know, just how many um, vaccines they've produced. Um, I think it's a little bit unfair, that statement, because we've seen a lot of the vaccine manufacturers at- attempt to, you know, bring a, bring a vaccine to market and ultimately feel like the Merck one we were talking about. Um, so ultimately, they're not going to put that much... Um, you know, if they've lost a lot of money or a lot of time and resources going into these uh, therapies, then they're not going to invest even more 
um, after, it's, after it's failed. Yeah, I mean, um, I think they're in a very difficult situation there because they, they've still got, they, there's still a lot of aspects for them to think about as well. They're, they're still companies that, you know, although there is a social responsibility here, they, they are, they've got a bottom line, um, which you can't yeah. get away from. Plus, um, the, like you said, I think Merck's a very good example of that they haven't been on the sidelines at all. They've actually, they've actually, no, I mean, they've approach. tried to, it's ultimately, found it hasn't worked. Yeah. Yeah, it just seems, I mean, I, you know, the alliance does bring up some very good points. Um, I just thought that was a little bit, a little bit harsh on some of the manufacturers. Um, but anyway, they end that release um, calling on US President Joe Biden and the governments of the UK and the EU to use their emergency powers into leverage massive public funding to put pressure on people like Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Moderna to openly share the vaccine science and technology and to waive their patents and insist that all other vaccine producers get involved in production. I don't think President Biden of the UK care about any of that, to be fair. To sound harsh, um, I don't think it's their prerogative to but I, I don't think they're, I think they're going to be focused on vaccinating their populations as widely as they can so they can get back to normal as quickly as possible. You know, we, we've seen these sort I of think... nationalistic approaches where we see all the UK government press releases that we're doing the best, etc. Yeah, I think you actually make a good point about the, you know, it's, it's not really their prerogative, but I think in the case of Joe Biden, at the moment, he's got a, you know, a slim majority in the House of Representatives, and he's got a, the slimmest majority in the Senate. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of high-profile Democratic con- uh, congressional members and senators on the left of the Democratic Party who can, you know, who can kick up a bit of a fuss. So this might actually get Biden's attention a little bit. How much attention? It remains to be seen, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't rush to say that this, this uh, won't be, uh, uh, this won't be in his thinking. No, like, yeah, I, I think it is just a, it's an overall industry-wide issue, where there needs to be regulation and policies put in place for these type of emergency situations, so the distribution of vaccines are more widespread on a on a global level rather than, you know, the UK and other rich countries can buy up over 50% of the, uh, the vaccine doses, which are already going to be available in 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the you know, governments should have a say in that, but I don't think, I think if they're doing well in their vaccination schedules and they're not going to make that a primary concern, unfortunately. Oh, I agree. Anyhow, I think yep. uh, that's probably yeah. a very good place to uh, wrap things up. In all honesty, because you know we, I think we spoke. We think we've only just scratched the surface on on our COVID nineteen vaccinations, and there will be more to come from us in the uh, in the coming weeks and months as this story develops. But I think it's worth pointing out that we are going to be talking about other stuff on Med Talk. We're going to be talking about um, not just the the, the vaccines behind uh, COVID nineteen, but we're also going to be talking about the new treatments that have been developed. There's Diagnostics. We're also going to be talking about how that 
how the health tech and digital health industry has been a has has seen something of a boom during this time when other industries haven't. And um, we're also going to be talking about the regulatory effects that have come, that have come into into force following the UK's withdrawal from the single market and customs union after their vote to leave the European Union. But Rhys, I'd like to say thank you very much for your time uh, today. And uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you. Finally chatting to you after 11 months of uh, email conversations. <laughs> yeah, I have missed your voice as well. Hopefully we'll be back in the office uh, next year. <laughs> that was the Med Talk podcast. Thank you very much for listening.